podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. This is Chris Stemp. And this is John Rojas. This is yet another awesome episode, and it is the second time ever on the show that we have interviewed two people at the same time. And the first time we've interviewed a husband and wife duo. Isn't that right, John? That's correct. The coolest thing is it deals with a topic that John and I always talk about, always want to learn more about, and I'm sure you guys do too. We get emails from you all the time, and that's how to make work suck less, which, I mean, come on, we could all use a little bit of that. We're going to talk to, like we said, a husband and wife duo, and that's Marin and Jamie Shokier, and they wrote a book called Yoga Wisdom at Work. Finding Sanity Off the Mat and On the Job. It's really cool. They talk about yoga in ways that we're not used to hearing. I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But first, there's another reason why this show is awesome. And John didn't really necessarily want me to go into this much. But in the spirit of transparency, we have a sponsor for this show. So that kind of means if this keeps up, we won't have to beg for your money anymore. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're still going to have to beg for money here. Now, you know as well as I do that it all depends on how well this is taken by our listeners, how much they help support the show. That's actually a good point. Guys, we really need you to, if this is something you believe in or want to do, which I don't know, I can't be alone on an island here. I already bought it. It's incredible. So anyways, we do have an awesome sponsor, so much so that I actually bought their service and I'm waiting to get the packet. And when I get the results, maybe I'll let you guys know on air, but I'm pumped about it. This is something I've always been interested in and actually didn't know it existed. So I'd like to share it with everybody. Our sponsor is 23andMe, the number 23. They do genetic testing. So they send you a package and you give them a spit sample, you send it back and they give you a report with all types of really cool information that helps you better understand how your genes may impact your health. So it's things like what you might pass down to your children, what types of traits you have, things that you might be at risk for. Not that you definitely are, but you can check with your doctor and you can be more informed as a patient. It might actually help validate or quell some of your existing suspicions. 23andMe results also include fun data points, such as famous ancestors, how closely you're related to Neanderthals, why you may not like cilantro. Do you think cilantro tastes like soap? I, I mean, know some people do. That's really weird to me. How fast you metabolize coffee and other cool facts. Guys, go out, order your 23andMe DNA kit today for just $99 at 23andMe.com slash smart people. That's 23andMe.com slash smart people. Make sure to use that link. Really help out the show. We definitely appreciate it. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's jump into the other important stuff this week and talk a little bit about how I came across these authors. You know, Chris, you and I always talk about how much work sucks, how much stress there is day in and day out. 
And then I told you about me trying that meditation thing for that month. Yeah, I still, I still kind of make fun of you. Because it was like Oprah's meditation or it something. It was, yeah, uh, Deepak Chopra yeah. and, and Oprah. They did a guided meditation. And it was the greatest three weeks that I've experienced in the last couple of years. It was so amazing. So great that you don't do it anymore. Well, now I just can't find the time. Uh-huh. And that leads us to this book. We need to make the time for ourselves to better ourselves. Yeah, and I mean, we all get caught up in work. That's why the way that we tie in this week, yoga to work, and what you'll learn is yoga is not just the poses or the physical activity. There's a number of things. It includes meditation, mindfulness, appreciation, all types of great stuff that we have as a Western culture, gotten away from. So we're going to turn it over here to our guests, Jamie and Marin, in a little bit. We're going to talk to them about their book, Yoga Wisdom at Work. It's great stuff. Hope you guys enjoy it. We'll catch you in a few. First, guys, I did want to say, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Today was an an especially crazy day for me. Just uh, my alarm didn't go off this morning, so I was late to work. I got into work, and I have been dealing with an insurance issue because my computer got stolen. They told me they're not going to pay for it. My other computer shut down, froze, and is broken, and my check engine light went on. So (laughs) the point of all this is been a crazy day and I come down, I sit down and I'm, you know, preparing for the interview and I'm looking over your book, Yoga Wisdom at Work, Finding Sanity Off the Mat and on the Job. And instantly I just found myself kind of calming down and becoming centered. And I just want to say thank you for what you do. And, you know, your writing is, it's just so needed in society today, especially with how crazy and insane work is. Well, thank you very much. That's Those are high praise words indeed. And our publisher will be happy to know that just by looking at the cover, it had that kind of impact. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I did, I did actually flip through it. You know, I was reading through the book, so it's not just the cover, but it's the content, you know, it's good stuff. Thank you. First, I want to talk about yoga in general, and then we can talk about how it relates to work and how you can use it in the workplace. You talk about yoga reducing stress, and I think people take that for granted, but they don't know why. And I was hoping you might be able to talk about why the physical act of doing yoga, which I know is only part of it, helps reduce stress. Well, sure. I'd I'd be happy to address that. I've been practicing yoga for um, more than 15 years, and I actually started going to yoga classes because, not to reduce stress, but because I wanted to become more flexible. It was just another tool in my workout routine. And I noticed as I continued going that, that that was happening. Stress was reducing. It was quieting my chattering mind. It was a very stressful time in the organization I was working at. It was a newspaper that was going through a reorganization. And thinking about why it reduces stress, the physical practice, and and thank you for mentioning that it's only a a small part of a a complete yoga practice, but I think that it really requires concentration. It requires a level of focus and discipline. There's a centering usually associated with it at the beginning that sort of helps you put things in perspective. 
the physiological reasons, I don't know. There Maybe it releases endorphins. I, I couldn't speak to that scientific reason why mm -hmm. yoga does, but I can tell you that from a mental and spiritual aspect, the practice itself sort of requires all the things that, that help you put things in perspective, and I think that in itself is a, a stress reducer. When you said the thing about quieting the chattering mind, and, by, and the way you do that is through concentration, immediately that made sense to me because... Oftentimes, just the other day, even I was laying down and I had five minutes of spare time in a crazy day. And rather than just enjoy that time and just kind of relax and be there, I found instantly I'm trying to solve problems that might come up or problems that haven't come up and pulling out my phone, which I know John literally can't be. Oh, without. I live on my phone. He yeah. can't be without information <laughs> for two minutes. And I think you're so right about you need that thing that can kind of focus your mind on one thing. And I guess yoga can become that. Right. And one of the things that also uh, the, the physical practice helps with is the whole notion of breath and being able to channel and manage your breath. Typically, when people are stressed, I know it happens to me, we sort of lose track of our breath. It becomes short, particularly on the inhale and so forth. And when you have a on the mat practice, it's generally integrated with a breathing practice if the teacher's doing what they should be doing, frankly. Because of that, then one learns how to manage their breath. And there are countless stories in the book, as you probably noticed, where when people found themselves under stress, the first thing they did was breathe. And it becomes reflexive once you begin to sort of channel that through the physical practice. I mean, that kind of sounds funny because we're always breathing, right? So the first thing you do is breathe. You know, you're always breathing anyway, but but you become mindful about your breath. You're conscious of the power of it, and, and you the way can you breathe. right, and you can use it to s slow yourself down and calm yourself and ground yourself. I actually find it funny because I think we take the art of breathing just as something that we don't think about for granted. Because I started noticing myself at work when I was stressed or trying to get something done that for like 10 or 15 seconds, I was not breathing, holding my breath. And I found that this was causing even more stress or it was something that my body was doing that as I was getting more and more stressed, I was literally forgetting to breathe. That's right. pretty common. And the other thing that breath can do is the opposite of that. So if you're feeling sort of sluggish at work in the afternoon or lethargic and you've already had three cups of coffee, there are techniques that you can learn they're called pranayama techniques that can help restore your energy and perk you up in a more natural and, and healthy way. While we're on the subject and just this short into the show, let's give our listeners something that they can take home with them. Could you explain maybe one breathing technique or one way we could practice, especially let's talk about the one that you just mentioned that energizes you a little bit. Well, let me tell you about one practice that can actually go either way depending on which nostril you start with. It's called Nodi Shodana breathing, and there's an explanation in the book, and it requires you to use your fingers, and you close off one nostril and then the other. So if I want to energize myself, I've, I'm going to start with the left nostril. Hey, guys, quick correction. I talked to Marin after the show. If you want to energize, you start with the right nostril. But if you want to calm and ground yourself, you start with the left. I'm going to close off the right nostril. You can actually even do this mentally, and it's just as powerful. But some people like to have the physical experience. So you close off your right nostril, and you inhale through your left nostril. And then you release the right nostril, close off the left nostril, and exhale out of the right nostril. And then inhale in the right nostril, 
close it, release through the left nostril. And you continue this process for a few minutes. Uh, if you start with your left side, that's going to energize you. If you start with your right side, that's a very calming practice. And it has to do with the lobes of your brain and what controls what. Okay, that is fascinating. And John and I both, as you were telling that, <laughs> gave it a shot. We were like, wait, wait, we got to try this if we're, if we're doing stuff with nostrils. So that's really cool, though. That's the kind of stuff that I think I've never heard of it. And I've tried yoga and I've tried meditation and all that stuff. That's good info. We want to keep going with that. So I really appreciate that. And I also wanted to see what kind of things can people do? I know this is kind of, I guess, moving into the, the workplace, which is what your book is about. But what kind of things can people do to relax their muscles? I know I've heard things like tense them and release them. Do you have any cool tricks for that as well? Like while you're sitting in a chair, maybe? Well, I, you know, for me... Personally, the, the breath is the key because it's, uh, I don't do any necessarily the tense in my muscles and releasing, although I have talked to people who find that particularly useful. So if you, I would recommend you try it and see how it works for any of the listeners out there. What really does ground me, though, is uh, the breathing technique that Marin just described, or sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, having a few seconds in a chair with my eyes closed, matching my inhale to my exhale. Breathing really has four parts to it. There's an inhale, there's the pause before the exhale, the exhale, and the pause before the inhale. And so the inhale is about bringing in receptive energy, and the exhale is about the strength that you use relative to performing different tasks and actions. So you can uh, inhale on a count of three, pause for a second, exhale on a count of three, pause for a second, inhale on a count of three, and no magic in the number three. You could do four, you could do five, depending on your lung capacity and, and that sort of thing. I don't focus so much attention on the muscular stuff as I do the breath that actually is the source of, of energy for the muscles. That totally makes sense. And this is also a great place to talk about, you know, for people sitting there going, wow, this is weird. We're talking about breath and all this stuff when I thought it was about yoga. And everybody associates yoga with the down dog position or, <laughs> I, I don't know, the plank or I, I don't know actually all the terms, but I know down dog. That's about it. Downward. <laughs> downward, downward facing dog. It's yeah, a great it pose. <laughs> yeah. um, right. it's, it's mostly known as a physical practice, an on-the-mat practice. Yeah. That's, that's the main reason we wrote the book because, I mean, we both have a physical practice and we love it, but I, out of 22 million practitioners in this country, maybe more by now, I would suspect that a large majority of them don't realize there's this beautiful philosophy and these guiding principles that can help you transform your life. And certainly, if you apply these very practical principles to your work life, I think that you will become more successful and have more sanity at work. Well, let's dive into that. Let's talk about, I guess, the first place to start is there are eight limbs of yoga, as you describe it. I've never heard of that. I'm sure most people haven't. And the limbs themselves, after reading them, are they make you become really introspective and think about, you know, more than just what's going on out there in the world. So I was wondering if you could tell us about the eight limbs and give us a little bit more information there. Well, let's give you just a really uh, brief overview. And I'm not going to use the Sanskrit terms because I think one of the things we're trying to do here is sort of demystify sure. yoga. People think of it as being very woo-woo and mystical. And it can be a spiritual practice, but it's also really, really practical. So I'm going to use the English translations. The first limb actually has five principles attached to it. And the first limb is about universal 
morality. It's the ways that we can um, bring ourselves present in the world. And they cover things like nonviolence, non-lying, non-stealing, non-wasting of vital energies, and non-greed. And these five principles actually correlate with research that's been done about cultural ethics, you know, and, and uh, the, the five things that come up in every culture as sort of being basic ethics typically fall into one of these arenas. The second limb is about sort of framing my personal conduct in terms of how I live out. One of the things that's been very appealing to me about yoga is that fundamentally it's about putting intention into action. And so the limb one that Marin describes the intention and, and the second limb then is about the actions. And one of the limbs is purity, which has to do with how you take care of yourself as well as purity of what you think about, what you put into your body, food-wise and otherwise. Contentment is a principle in the second limb. What does it take to be contented? And one of the things that we've found through our practice and so forth is, we could talk about this later if you like, but the contentment fundamentally is a choice that I make about how I view my circumstances and, and the world around me. So that's always available to me. Another one is about self-study. We might call it self-awareness or becoming more conscious of who you are and how you are when you're present with others at work. The fourth one is discipline. Practice takes discipline. You can't learn how to hit the curveball if you don't ever step in the batter's box, so to speak. And so <laughs> this whole idea of yoga and practice is a big deal. And the last one is about surrender. It fundamentally has to do with surrendering my own personal self-interest with the notion that I am really part of a greater whole, whether it's my business unit, whether it's the business that I work in, the community that I live in, or the world as a whole, and how can I surrender my self-interest and align it, if you will, with the good of the greater whole. The third limb is the postures, which we've talked about and which people are familiar with. So that's the physical practice, but the, there's a lot of metaphors for work there because you need to be strong and flexible and stable and you need to focus and persevere. So there's also metaphors for work there. And then the fourth limb is about breath, which we've also talked about a bit. The fifth limb is pratyahara, which is withdrawal of the senses. And this is where it becomes more of a mental practice. Um, and the idea is that you sort of Try not to get addicted to sensation, which is really hard to do in our culture, right? Because we're constantly being bombarded by smells and sights and sounds and those kinds of things. So it's hard to sort of go inward and get quiet. So that's about that practice. Yeah, the sixth limb um, is about focus. And the whole idea around sense withdrawal that uh, Marin just talked about is about being able to practice, actually, learning how to focus so that you can uh, shut out background noise when you need to and concentrate on a task and that kind of stuff. We've had lots since the advent of the quote-unquote computer age, lots of uh, stuff written about being able to multitask and that sort of thing. Multitasking is an illusion that was probably made up by the computer industry because <laughs> your brain cannot multitask. It, it can task switch so quickly it appears as if you're multitasking, but you're really not. And the research that has not only proven that has also proven that to try to quote-unquote multitask actually erodes your IQ because of the connections that your brain makes in such a fashion that it actually does harm to critical thinking, it does harm to deeper ways of knowing and that kind of stuff. So the focus aspect of, of that limb is important. And, and part of the whole purpose of all of this whole practice is leading up to meditation 
meditation is about going inward again, quieting yourself, self-awareness, creating insight. And then the last limb is it's called samadhi or absorption. And for the purposes of our book, we've defined that as sort of aligning your highest, best self and your purpose. And when those two things combine, your highest best self and when you're at your purpose you sort of lose yourself to the work you become absorbed in something that greater than yourself and so that would be the eighth limb i think everybody's had the experience they call it in sports if you guys are sports fans they call it being in the zone everybody's had the experience of getting lost in a task whether it was a sport task whether it was a work task or a hobby where the time just passes to the point that you can't believe Two hours have gone by and you're so connected with what you're doing. That's a, a more Western way of sort of looking at this whole notion of absorption, but clearly relevant to work. So does your book or does your practice help with kind of getting in that zone with the absorption arm, if you will? For me personally, it does because we have been in the organizational development business for quite a number of years. So we spend a lot of time in organizations. And I think this whole idea of yoga being a set of principles and practices that put intention into action through practice is where the real key lies, because it is about fall down and get up and try it again. It is about finding for myself how I can learn to expand my ability to be able to focus, for instance, or create a greater sense of self-awareness in terms of the way I deal with other people. Are you guys seeing more and more businesses and organizations coming to adopt these practices? I mean, obviously, this is an area that you work in. What have you seen over the past, I don't know, five or 10 years in terms of growth to have their employees do this? Well, I haven't had a whole lot of personal experience, although I will say that I worked for a newspaper in Florida that sponsored on-site yoga classes once a week. They paid for the instructor and there was a group of us that would gather together after work. And that was really a big turning point for me. It happened to be an amazing teacher that they brought in and he started talking about some of these limbs, which piqued my curiosity and led me down this whole path that, that I'm on now. We do know that in doing research for the book that there are a growing number of companies who are becoming aware of the benefits of meditation, you know, Google has been a real leader in that. They actually offer meditation classes and meditation courses to their employees. I think General Mills is doing some stuff. Aetna is doing stuff. Harpo Productions. Uh, um, Oprah. And then there's Russell Simmons, who actually endorsed our book, is a huge yogi. So I think that there is this consciousness building around yoga but again most people think of it as a physical practice or meditation or breathing and they're they're not necessarily aware of sort of the ethical framework or the personal code that can guide i mean for work what you want to do is develop people's potential you want people to have the resources they need you want them to recognize that their co-workers also have that same potential and help and you're helping each other sort of develop into your highest best purpose i mean that would be the ideal for me and so I'm hoping that as companies like these big companies I mentioned, and there may be other smaller ones, I don't know, start into this physical practice, the meditation practice, that maybe they'll discover some of the other richness that, that yoga has to offer. The idea for this book has, has uh, its roots back in 2005 when Marin and I met. 
And we had a number of conversations about the principles of yoga and how they connected with some of the practices and principles that were already in our consulting business that we had been, I started this business in like 1989. And the fact that Western culture has taken the physical practice and brought it into business is no big surprise because they want people to experience less stress and so forth. You might be interested to know that when we decided we were actually going to write this book, we wanted to see what the competition was like out there. And there are no other books like this (laughs) on the market yet. This is the first book that has taken the practices and principles of yoga and looked at it through the lens of work and sort of unfolded it, if you will, around the notion of work to try to be helpful beyond the physical practice. So I don't see a lot of, other than the physical practice, a lot of practice of some of these other specific limbs, but the wish is that this book will do something to for, you know, to sort of help that advance. Right before the interview, Chris and I were talking and I was mentioning the, the non-lying commitment to truth and how that can be applied while in the workplace and how you guys mentioned that you can use this by speaking up during a meeting like when you would normally be quiet and you actually have something to say or if you see that somebody's doing something unethical and, and saying something or they're treating a subordinate wrong, like going ahead and speaking up. And I found it just very interesting that these philosophies and and thoughts could be practiced within the workplace. And you guys are right. I mean, it's, this is the only book that I saw on Amazon when I was looking for meditation and yoga within the workplace, that kind of thing. That's how I came across the book. But I I think it's very fascinating how you've taken, you know, that step to bridge that gap between the actual yoga practice and then how you can apply it within the workplace. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon from my perspective. You mentioned non-lying. You know, in, in some organizations, telling the truth is a radical act. Sure. Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And I think it's a statement about both Western culture and the state of affairs that we find many of our businesses in today that people feel afraid for actual real consequences if they speak up and have a point of view. So that in and of itself sort of leads me to believe we still have a long way to go in terms of bringing some of these uh, precepts and principles more to life. But obviously, Marin and I wouldn't be doing this work if we didn't have hope that that would occur. <laughs> and on the other hand, I, I do want to say that there are probably a lot of people out there in the work world and in organizations who are practicing the very things that we write about this book and they're doing yoga and they don't even really, they wouldn't call it yoga. They wouldn't know necessarily that it's yoga, but You know, you don't have to be a yogi to practice yoga. What I find really interesting is the thing you were talking about multitasking and how it actually, you know, lowers IQ and how it's creating this loss of focus. I've noticed even since I started working at this small company and there's so much that needs to get done and it's so varied. So it is this multitasking idea, right? It's switching from different vertical to different vertical. I feel at the end of the day, not only do I feel fried, but sometimes I feel dumb (laughs) because I can't (laughs) keep track of where I am, you know, and I can't dive in. I can't find the flow because um, I'm going back and forth so much. So I just really love how you were saying, you know, that's one thing that you can kind of gain through this. And I was wondering if you have given advice to people on how to hone that focus. I think you're describing a very common experience in the workplace today. Most workplaces are, are really high drum beats. You know, the, after the economy tanked, there were a lot of people who lost their jobs and, and those jobs haven't necessarily been replaced, so the workload's high. And I think the first thing that can be helpful is to acknowledge that 
A, multitasking is impossible. It's just, it's a mythology. Two, realizing that if you can bring yourself fully present to a task and do it fully and right in the first place, you're really in the long run going to be a lot more efficient. And one of the practices that is helpful for me is because I start, you know, spinning in my head, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that. When am I going to have time to do this? Is to figure out one or two or three things in the day that I really have to get done and that I really want to get done and commit to getting those done. But also sort of taking a minute to think about parking the rest of the stuff, acknowledging it, honoring it. It does need to get done. But today, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on this and really do it right and be productive. Or if you have a, a myriad of tasks that you have to pay attention to, one of the things that is kind of practical that works for me is to say, I'm going to give this next task 45 minutes of uninterrupted time, and then I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk around and I'm going to come back and switch to another task for 30 minutes because of its relative weight and priority to everything that needs to get done. And to develop focus, you have to have discipline, you know, which is, which is one, of the, one of the second limb principles. And so the idea is to say, well, if I want to get better at focusing, then what is a practice that I can create for myself that works for me that uh, will help me develop my ability to focus. Uh, when I was a manager inside organizations, I would tell my staff that, you know, my door is always open unless I need some quiet, concentrated time. And if you see my door shut, if it's an emergency, by all means, interrupt me. But if it's not an emergency and it can wait, that means I need my private time to get some things done. And so it's sort of enlisting the support of other people might be another thing to add to the pragmatic list of how can I help develop focus. No, right. those are great that's points. And Jamie, you also mentioned earlier that contentment is a choice. And I've heard similar things before. Um, oftentimes, I I think recently, even John the other day said, man, you've turned into a pessimist. And I mm -hmm. never was. And I'm so frustrated by that. And I'm changing it. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm making that mental decision. But contentment being a choice also seems, A, it seems kind of difficult to achieve. And B, there's no real way to go about that. I mean, there's no instructional booklet because I can wake up and say, I'm going to be happy with what I have. I'm going to realize that there's other people out there that are worse off. And to be honest, that hasn't worked. So I was wondering <laughs> kind of how you go about that. I mean, first of all, I think you're on the right track by saying, I'm going to wake up and have a good day. Okay. I think that's basically where it starts. One of the things we've noticed about lots of wisdom traditions, whether it's yoga or whether it's Viktor Frankl's work in terms of a man's search for meaning, uh, he writes in that book that the last freedom we have to give up is how we face our circumstances, what we will make of our circumstances. One of the things that in Western culture we don't do very well is realize that we live life inside ourselves. We don't live life out there. We look out there for contentment. Gee, if I had a different boss, I'd be contented. If, you know, if Marin was only a good wife, we'd have a perfect marriage. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways that we look outside for circumstances to make our insides feel okay. And that's not the way it works. The circumstances are outside of our control. What I make of those circumstances matters. And I can choose to say, this is my life and I am contented with this life. And, and it's a good life and I have enough and, and I'm satisfied with what I have. And it doesn't mean you don't strive for goals and you don't try to provide for your family and, and achieve and those kinds of things. But it's sort of to stop looking outside for things that we have at our access always because we live life inside out, not outside in. Well, and I'd just like to add to that that 
I think it's important to acknowledge sort of the initial and emotional response we have to circumstances beyond our control. So it's completely human and normal to be disappointed in things that happen at work. It's completely normal to get frustrated or angry or any of those sort of human emotional responses that we have. And so then the next question you have in the face of that emotional response is, okay, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to let it ruin my day? Am I going to let it derail my happiness? And once you have an intention of becoming a person or being a person who chooses for hope and optimism, then, you know, you might fall down. It's a practice, right? But, but at least you know what you're striving for. And I have found in, in my own practice that, that gratitude, I mean, I love what you said about, you know, you framed it as, you know, I'm better off than most people. But that really is a very powerful practice. If you just sort of think in the morning, connect to your breath, think about all the things that you can be grateful for. Gratitude can change your attitude like faster than anything. Right. Well, and you mentioned, Chris, that you've been accused of, um, of becoming more pessimistic. Yeah, by John. Well, <laughs> one of the things that's interesting about that phenomenon is that pessimism is a choice that's made in response to being disappointed. And there's no end to the disappointment. I can turn on the TV, I can walk down the street, I can do just about anything that I engage in day to day and find disappointing things occurring. The The fundamental question then becomes, what am I going to do with my disappointment? Am I going to let it sort of create a fog that has me prejudge the next set of circumstances as, uh, oh, I've been here before, these are going to be disappointing too, or can I live on the edge and sort of ex have the experience and realize, yeah, I'm disappointed, but I'm still hopeful and optimistic about my life and about the future and about this job and about this place. And advice I would give people is if they try that over a period of time and it doesn't work, particularly about a job or a place to work, then maybe it's just not a good fit. Maybe you're not doing what you've been sort of called to do, if you will, in your work. And and maybe you should look at some other opportunities uh, or some other possibilities. If you can. If you can. I really liked what you guys had to say there. And I guess the last question I had for you is since you've been doing this and you talk to people obviously all the time, professionals and, you know, just people who want to know about yoga and everything, and you were relating your practice to work, I was wondering if you saw a common theme, what people concentrated on the most, what they were worried about, stressed them out, and then what your advice to them might be, you know, just kind of speaking to the the broader whole of everyone that's trying to manage this workplace we have? I think the most powerful thing that any person can do in developing a, a, a practice is to become intentional, to spend some time, sit down, spend some time and get really clear on who do you want to be in this world? You know, what contribution do you want to make? What legacy do you want to leave? Because once you're really clear on that, then everything else falls into place a lot more easily. You can choose actions and behaviors and practices that support the person you want to be. You can choose friends and groups and people to be associated with who will support you in becoming the person that you want to be. But really, if you're not clear about it, if you haven't spent any time thinking about what your purpose is, who you want to be, then you know any old road will get you where you don't know you're going. Right. I think the other thing that, that I'd like to attach to that, if I might, is to come back to another uh, theme that's been present in this conversation, and that's the whole idea of practice. What we find is that people in organizations 
tend to have what businesses would consider to be negative responses to situations of disappointment, injustice, feeling invisible, not being taken seriously. Those are themes that people express. We've worked with thousands of people around those issues and tens of thousands of people over the last 25 years around those issues. And, you know, you're always going to be disappointed. You're always going to find injustice. You're, you know, you're never going to be taken seriously enough all the time. And so what you do with that and how you practice saying, I'm not going to let this drag me down, I am going to be something else, is a practice. And just like learning how to hit the curveball, it's hard. You know, it's not all roses and 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 light, so to speak. Or, or doing a yoga pose to put it in a different, you know, one of the CEOs that we interviewed for the book talked about how she really loved falling out of difficult poses in yoga class. And I kind of laughed because I'm like, I hate that. I feel stupid. And she's like, no, no, because it is a practice, right? It's a practice. And it, and it reminds me that life's hard. And just because I fell out of this pose doesn't mean I'm not good, that I never will achieve it again. It means that I have to try the pose again and again and again. So the practice element of this is just so important. I think that's the perfect place to, to end on that great advice. And again, your book, Yoga Wisdom at Work, Finding Sanity Off the Mat and on the Job is fantastic. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. I just wanted to ask if our listeners wanted to find out more about you, do you have a website that you can direct them to? Are you on social media and those types of things? Absolutely. All of that information is in the back of the book. So if they bought a book, that would, would give them that. But we have a Yoga Wisdom at Work uh, Facebook page. Uh, our website is www.yogawisdomatwork.com. You can find us on, uh, on Twitter. I'm at Authentic Marin. Our first book was Authentic Conversations, which is where that came from. And Jamie is at 17 Jamie. We're easy to find. Just Google us. Right. Guys, again, thank you so much. The book's fantastic, and thank you for spending the time to talk with us. It's yep. been a real pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's been an honor. We appreciate being included with this uh, group of folks that you already have recorded. All these smart people. Yeah. Well, now you're one of them. <laughs> or <laughs> two of them. I'm smarter already. There you go. Thanks again, guys. Okay, thank you take you. care. All right, you too. Bye, both of Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye. Thank you guys so much for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jamie and Marin. Hopefully you learned something awesome. Hopefully you go out and take a look at their book and peruse and try to find ways to, to bring some calmness into the workplace. Yeah, and hopefully this will help you with your quest to better yourself, to really get to know yourself. If you want to get to know yourself, make sure you check out your DNA at 23andme.com slash smartpeople. Man, that was a shameless second plug there, huh? Hey, you get what you pay for. So anyways, guys, thanks so much for tuning in. As always, we appreciate it. We're doing this thing weekly again. We missed one week. It was a holiday, and we'll catch you next week. Bye.